Shalom. Hello, hello. I am Keats Ross. This is the Pragmagic Liminal Stream. Um, I'm here today with dear friend from down under, Mr. Jeremy Francis of the Alchemical Arts. And I just wanted to say a couple of things uh, before we start tonight. Um, Jeremy Francis is a true alchemist. Uh, whether it's casting his own talisman out of metals, forging his own color pigments out of dubious elements, or waxing on about traditionalist methods only found in 18th century tomes. The alchemical arts is a brilliant artist and modern color man. So please welcome Mr. Jeremy Francis. How are you, Jeremy? I'm good. It's good to be back here with you. Yeah, um, it's a long time. Oh, I yeah, it's maybe been not too long, huh? It's about a year. Was yeah. It? I would say it was, it was a very different world a year ago. I was going to say, I remember last yeah. talking to you, I, I knew exactly where I was. I was in Portland at my last spot. I remember the night. I remember, yeah, I just, it's funny how, how much has changed and it feels like it's only been, you know, a year. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I, yeah, I was super early days and everything I was doing back then. And I was, I was still in Melbourne in the city and just sort of cramped up in a little attics space there. Um, yeah, it was really, really fascinating thinking back how, just how much has progressed over the last year or so in terms of like 
my working practice, but also my attitude to working as well, given just the insanity of this last 12 months as well. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that's why it was so prescient, I think, for me to talk to you now, because I think, you know, when we use the term alchemy, it's used very loosely, and tonight we'll probably use it quite loosely. But you are, in the truest sense of the word, an alchemist. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe the literal interpretation of what I'm, I'm meaning. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you use the word literal, because I think um, part of something I've noticed in terms of, so I think when we spoke last time, I would have been pretty deep into reading a bunch of the old alchemical literature, as well as like, you know, I drew a lot from Jung's writings on alchemy and uh, James Hillman and the way he looks at alchemy and sort of the relationship between psycho-spiritual and psych psychological models of alchemy and how I could apply that thinking to sort of my practice of color making and that sort of stuff. Whereas where I'm at now, I've kind of pushed a lot of that theoretical stuff to the side mm -hmm. and the main the main important process that I follow is just observation. Um, and it's slowly becoming apparent as I, you know, there's, there's a real difference between like learning to make a particular pigment from some old book. And the first few times you're like really carefully following the recipe and all of this sort of stuff. And you kind of get results you're happy with, and then you don't get results you're happy with, but as you do it over and over and over and over again, there's some pigments where I've made, you know, 20, 30 batches. And I'm at this point now where it becomes this kind of exercise in mindfulness when I sit down to make the pigment where I'm no longer thinking about, oh, do I need to add 15 grams of this and heat it to this temperature? It's just like feeling my way through it and observing as the changes in the material happen and knowing that if I tweak this thing, I'll get this result or knowing, and it's like, it's a real, it's a really nice feeling to get to that point where you know a material or a substance well enough that you can intuitively manipulate it. Mm -hmm. To that's, and yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say that's a, absolutely interesting because I think when we had talked last, you you were very much in the formulation of you know there needs to be kind of a theoretical foundation. And this was, was you exploring that side and like really getting to the nitty gritty of old alchemical texts. And, you know, we talked a little bit about more of the metaphorical alchemical like process yeah. that happens in creativity and what you make. And you're a musician, you've done, you're yeah. a painter, right? You, you do a lot of art. And so now it's like, I thought we could take this time and talk about, yeah, and it sounds like you're you're parallel to that. You're going through the process of feeling that kind of, inner alchemy or that chan that transitory state within you know creation yeah and it became something that i observed through looking at the sort of you know the subreddits of alchemy or like people's facebook groups of alchemy and stuff and there's this like real drive to literalism which yeah. is like you get all of these people being like how to make philosopher stone need to know want to gain immortality <laughs> Yeah. Um, please give recipe now. And it's like, that's, I think that's part of the problem of where our society is at is we view so much of everything in a literal sense that we forget the, the sort of counteracting balance to that, to literalism, which is imagination. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so I think early on, I was very obsessed with trying to build this bridge or this marriage between the classical alchemical literature, psychology, metaphysics, and the physical process I was doing. Whereas as time's gone on, the, the thing that's most important is actually just doing it. Right. Do you feel like uh, there's like a transmutation too of like conceptualizing, right? Like you're, you're talking about, you just, you're just trying, you're going by feel, you get to know something so well that it's really just like an expression of, you know, how, how to change it rather than, you know, a goal so much. it's about what's in the materials themselves and how they relate and it's about how there isn't like there is both precision and unexpected results at the same time and so it's like one of the things I do is I go on like and I search through like sort of contemporary journal articles for like modern advancements in pigment making and I'll find some paper from like a you know Chinese university on like this particular the color they make, and I go and recreate that experiment you know dot for dot exactly the same, and yet I yield a completely different result. Oh, interesting. And I, I think this is a very common thing in science at the moment is like this whole idea of the reproducibility of science is actually deeply flawed, and yeah. so a vast amount of the scientific literature can't actually be reproduced and you don't get the same results. And yeah, I was going to say, do you think there's a confluence too about like absolutism, you know? Yes. And and, And, yeah. And and I think science is starting to realize and catch up and they've, you know, this is all in quantum stuff and things like that, that the intention of the experimenter is put into the experiment. Right. And that has an, has an effect on it. And that's where things start to come back to the classical alchemy, which is in classical alchemy, a lot of what they were doing in terms of working with elements and real material is there is a literalism in the materials they're working with, lead and sulfur and mercury. They are literally working with those things, but they also had either a conscious and an unconscious understanding that they were projecting themselves into it Mm -hmm. and it was projecting back into them. Yeah, and so will made manifest in a, in a way. It's yeah, also, exactly. Yeah, like a psychical interference too from personality, you know, or just maybe how you pinch a pigment, <laughs> you know, like how, you know, how you caress a material in your hands as opposed to somebody else. It's some weird kinetic thing. Yeah, and there's a there's a patience and a reverence to the changes that are happening. So I've been doing a huge amount of work with copper at the moment. Um, I've, I've just done a deep dive into copper for some strange reason. And, you know, classically copper is considered um, the metal of Venus. Right. Um, and it's just a really interesting um thing that happens with copper is you end up with these pigments that are very very beautiful but very fragile and very prone to falling apart and degrading and becoming a complete and utter mess mm-hmm. and it's been really interesting sort of watching the shifts and changes that go on 
with different copper materials. You know, you see how copper oxidizes out in the world. Oh, yeah, I remember famously seeing the Andy Warhol painting that Lou Reed pissed on. You know, yep. that he, he did the copper painting and he had people at the factory pee on it and just yep. he would hang it up on the walls that oxidized with their urine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. it's really cool. And then so while I've been sort of working with that, because it's not an immediate response to make a lot of these pigments, they take weeks of like digesting and sitting and changing and doing all of these things that it requires so much time spent just looking mm. and and sort of contemplating and just watching the changes happen that one it's given me a huge like um respect to copper but two it's also given me this really interesting insight to try and think well why did ancient cultures conflate the ideas of the goddess of love and venus with this metal like what is it about this metal that's somehow representative of her mm-hmm. um which is yeah it's just a really fascinating sort of thing to try and figure out because at some point people saw a correlation between the two what's your understanding is it the fragility of it i think so yeah i think you get something i mean i think there's a nice parallel between you know, the the beauty of the tones that are produced, but the unstable nature of them. And if you're referring that back to, to the goddess and the epitome of love, then there is definitely some parallels between the nature of love being both beautiful, but fairly unstable. Right. Yeah. Very fragile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Navier in the uh, chat mentioned that Aphrodite was born on Cyprus. And the island is made of copper, so that's a pretty direct correlation. Yep, and I think it's also like the sea green elements of the whole oh, yeah. Aphrodite myth being born from Kronos's genitals in the ocean. Um, I have this here, I'll show you. So this is a piece of copper that's been in a chamber with vinegar. That's oh, beautiful. Yeah, it's just just these are little blue illustrious crystals i love that blue yeah so nice <laughs> you have a couple of pigments that really like shout at me like that seem like i know how you you've made them so organically that seems so otherworldly you know that's the other thing that i've really enjoyed too is the learning to be like respectful and revenant of very complex and dangerous um, poisons, basically. Yeah. Uh, And learning to respect using them um, is a really interesting thing. So it's like my attitude to, say, making an ochre pigment from the earth where I go out and collect, because, you know, Australia's got amazing ochre and we go out and collect all these earth pigments. That's something I'm willing to get my hands into and, like, you know, be very, very tactile with, and there's a certain, the the attitude that I bring to dealing with an earth pigment is very different to the attitude I'll bring to making something with lead or chromium or, yeah. you know, these sorts of things. And it also means that the color itself has a different attitude to it because it's like, 
the level of care and respect needed to produce something that's going to, you know, give off some sort of really toxic gas or something like that. Right. You know, you have to be very, very careful with that. And so you have a completely different attitude to the final product Mm -hmm. and feeling towards that color as opposed to something that you can really get your hands into. Yeah, last um, time we talked, you were you were you made a mercury talisman. Uh, no, that was a lead for, talisman. Lead, lead talisman. Yeah. That's right, of Saturn. And yeah, you were talking about just the toxicity of you know what you're working with, and I still have him. You still have it. Yeah, he's awesome. degrading. He's oh wow, white. it's even he's, more pretty. In his age, yeah. in his age, he whitens. We talked about that too, and just that yeah. almost uh, the the alchemy of color, you know. And uh, I always love that part of our discussion. And, you know, that seems to be like oxidizing in a reverse or like an absolute way where it gets, it becomes yeah. white. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, if, if it's satin, it's the old man and it's, he's degrading mm-hmm. into his age. Um, but that's the other thing too. There's this like feeling with each pigment where like, depending on what they're made of, some literally have more weight to them. And some are very light. And so you get these, these differences in the qualities and the working properties of them. And it's something that we don't get in modern pigment chemistry. Um, a lot of synthetic colors that have been produced in the last 70, 80 years, they're uniform, they're the same weight, and they're all very strong. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was going to say, like, have you... How did how did you like parallel? Did you continue working? I know you you had a background. You dabbled, you know, in kind of um, how do I put this metaphysical practice, whatever. Have you found that this was the perfect confluence, or did you actually do some stuff, you know, parallel as you were working through this stuff? As in, like, have I had a sort of separate sort of metaphysical? practice yeah like as as it's growing with your you know creations not really um of late i I really think as i said like the last year has mostly been about being in the work and i find like from of all of my sort of day-to-day activities the only time where i feel completely centered is when i'm making pigments there's right. this like complete like it's it's become my practice in sense that like I, yeah I'm that's getting, what I assumed yeah, yeah I'm I'm getting to the stage where I don't have to think when I do it and I don't have to um it's it's an emptying out and just a taking in so it's it's allowing me to sort of center myself and then just observe and well, yeah you mentioned the word mindfulness and. You know, even in in my creative aspects, yeah, it's like it's that runner's high in a way of, you know, that absolute bliss of just the process. Mm. And like, that's what I think what every creator craves. And so my next question is, how does one because, you know, we both do it in different avenues and stuff, but you've seemed to have grown a business too. Uh, you've seen to parlay this kind of practice into you know something that's actually really cool and entrepreneurial i was thinking like where did that kind of move in you know how did you start to see 
that you know other people would uh would kind of i don't know would would buy it you know <laughs> but <laughs> it was mostly driven from a necessity of um i couldn't because i've worked in hospitality for close to a decade mm-hmm. uh, and i was in the best hospitality position i'd ever been in my life where i was working for a family friends business where we made beautiful vegetarian food and they had been making their own tofu there for 38 years this place had Mm -hmm. been open um one of my best friends was my manager his dad was the owner and as wonderful as everything was there like it was a really kooky and eccentric place to work like i'd rock up sometimes and you know because the dad is an ex um baby boomer hippie He'd be mm. sitting out the front with a beer, still coming down from an LSD trip. And you'd be like, this is a Tuesday. You need to be at work. He'd be like, no, yeah. man, like, this is good. Um, <laughs> and despite all of that, I just couldn't take it anymore. I just couldn't take serving customers. I, my patience was running thin. And I just thought, no, I really need to do something else. And that's where this sort of difficult endeavor of balancing this sort of personal passionate project I'm working on and trying to um, engage in the entrepreneurial elements that mm-hmm. are necessary in order to make money which yeah. is a real shame I mean it's it's a shame but at the same time it, it deserves reward like of course you know what I mean like yeah, yeah I I struggled that with that as my own criticism for my own stealth and my own creative endeavors but it's one that I'm I'm undergoing an alchemy an inner alchemy of like I need to you know let go and you know uh not expect but promote a little bit more you know what I mean maybe promote's not the right word but you know say hey <laughs> you know you can you can have this for free or you can you know it's just such a tricky subject for me and it i think with yours you're actually giving something for people to use to create their own rather than you know what i mean like them you buying something kind of like a an album you know or yeah. any other piece of art it's like you're actually giving them an elemental base tool to create something beautiful which i think is really cool yeah well it became a thing of where i felt like my art was to provide materials for other artists i yeah i had become disillusioned with my own art making process and i find painting to be a very enjoyable but laborious struggle Mm -hmm. which i'm sure many painters relate to that particular um experience and it's not unique um but it was more fitting or felt more comfortable for me to make for other artists um yeah the difficulty that i'm having at the moment and this relates to what we were just talking about or i was about to go on about in terms of the relationship between modern art materials and archaic art materials um is trying to figure out how to sell that in the sense that for most people if you walk into an art store nowadays you'll be confronted with a wall of like you know anywhere between like 70 to 150 different colors that you can, you know, purchase from. If you think about even just like going to pick out house paint, just think about the innumerable amounts of little test cards that you can get of every possible color ever Yeah, is available. And that's not always been the case. 
you know, like, and we take it for granted, I think, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but in modern society, like, to go and have a purple t-shirt is just something we take for granted. You can just go right. and buy a purple t-shirt. If you were to go back to ancient Rome and you wanted a purple t-shirt, it would cost you the lives of 150,000 secretors. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to produce enough dye to dye one garment purple. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, which meant that only emperors had purple clothes, which mm-hmm. meant that there's this very regal color. Yeah. There's this deep association between regalness and purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I think it was the mid late 19th century when they synthesized the purple dye and were able to make it from uh, like a, a crude oil derivative. And that's when the um, London had the purple craze where Oscar Wilde and everybody was suddenly dressing in purple clothing and the whole society went purple and it was just wild. And um, I love it. Just because everybody could have purple. (laughs) Yeah. It's yeah. Unleashing a color to the world. It's insane. Exactly. That was previously reserved for only certain people in society because it was so scarce and so difficult to make. And so I think there's this, and I don't want to be too denigrating on contemporary art because people can do some amazing things with the modern tools and there's great elements to the convenience, but you kind of have your pick of a lot when you go to buy paints nowadays. You can have any color you want. Mm. You can have it in any cost you want. You know, you can find a cheap version or an expensive version. You can have whatever you want. And they're all predictable. Mm -hmm. They all have the same working qualities. They all have similar optical effects. And so the variance and individuality that the ancient colors would have had right up until about the 19th century, where artists would have to labor through their materials. Yeah. Because not everything worked the same. Some things were coarser or changed color or unstable or couldn't be mixed with this thing or were too expensive. Yeah. Um, It's insane to me. It's almost like a a color should be a right, but then at the same time, it has it has been. So it's been taken granted, you know, taken for granted. (laughs) So it's not as egalitarian, you know. Well, I think the beauty of what the ancient system did was it meant that colors had significance because they had didn't had to is not the right way, but they were used in specific circumstances. Yeah. You know, like because blues have historically been so expensive and so difficult to produce, they were for a vast portion of history reserved only for the mother of Jesus. Right. It's the yeah. only time you could use blue, which is why Impressionism was so radical and Picasso's blue period, they were so radical departures from the past because it suddenly everyone was free to use blue because there were more blues available. Mm-hmm. And so I really wonder how, this is the thing that I'm trying to figure out, is how do I convey this to people that, you didn't always have a smorgasbord of color mm-hmm. and there or was a actually... person hired to color match. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so 
it's, it's a difficult thing trying to emphasize this point of like, why is it actually beneficial or useful to have more difficult art materials to work with? Yeah. Um, what do you get gain from that process? Um, is, is it even worth it? You know? Um, I mean, speaking as a creator, we talked a little bit about this last time too. It's worth it all to me. Um, every elemental aspect of anything, you know, using to create, I think is, is absolutely worthwhile. And that's kind of where my fun and alchemy in the process comes from, as I'm sure you, it does for you, obviously, you know, but uh, to get to the foundational elements, to get to those elemental basis of, you know, of just color of, yeah, it's just, it, to me, it's just, it sings to a part of the soul that I think is, like you said, it was, it's been uh, taken for granted or it's been hushed a bit and yeah, we don't really look around and, you know, I've got poor eyesight. I love color. <laughs> the theorizing of color has been relegated to advertising campaigns. Right. And interior yeah. design. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's all the semiotics too of color and yeah. There's a, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of color schemes, as you can see with the, yep. the Austin Osmond Spare Sigil behind me or whatever, or the We The Hollowed site. Like it's, it's, I'm very color-based with projects and everything. It's always been, uh, it's always denoted um, a certain like oeuvre or ideology to a certain aspect of work and using like electric colors or, you know, pastel types you know for certain things that they do they denote they denote psychical resonance you know mm. i just gotten into making pastels like oh, pastel yeah? colors lately because i i kind of had a realization that some of my earlier color releases and sets that i was sort of selling were too much a personal preference they were too much rooted in the um deeper muted tones of the renaissance or the baroque period you know like velvety reds and earth tones and mm -hmm. you know these deep blues and things like that and i was like that's what i like but i also realized there's there's a huge number of people out there that like you know vintage mint greens and right you know, bright and you know, I, I say pastels and everyone is going to have a different avenue of thought of what those look like I'm sure yeah. people are thinking Easter or, you know, people are yeah. thinking, you know, some other, it's so funny, just the, yeah, like the psycho, psychical resonance that comes up and the it's connection to memory. And it's, it's a sense. It's like color is a sense. You yes. Know? Yeah. Um, I had, so Oswald Spangler in the chat wanted me to ask you about Austin Osmond's spare. I don't know exactly what he wanted to know, but I'm sure it has something to do, you know, with him being an, how do I put this? Like an inherently alchemical artist, uh, not so much a, you know, in the literal foundation, but have, is there anyone in that kind of era of people that have really inspired you? You've talked about Young before. Yeah. Theoretically, era, but <laughs> yeah, Young and those people I find very inspiring to reading their works on like the psychological alchemy and stuff and seeing how that relates to artists and stuff like that. But most of my art 
appreciation and most of my influence. And the reason I think I ended up in this place is just a really, really deep fascination with the, the art and processes of the medieval and Renaissance through the Baroque period. So, nice. you know, I grew up being really obsessed with Rembrandt and like Goya and Caravaggio and all of these classical European painters. Mm-hmm. And when I got to art school, that was just so not cool. Right. That was so just considered like stuffy academic old stuff. But it's like when you sit down and you look at those paintings or you go to Europe and you see those classical Renaissance paintings, they are incredibly powerful pieces of art. Um, and just the sheer craftsmanship and work that went into them and the working principles of like, you know, if you were a young student in, in Renaissance Italy, you would be tasked with sitting in the squares and drawing the statues for a few years before right. you could do anything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sitting in the, uh, like the Pioneer Square. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were tasked with, you know, the duty of being the painter's assistant where you ground his colors every morning for him mm-hmm. to do that kind of thing or you know, and then you might work your way up to being the person who does a little bit in the background. And I just think this idea of really deep level of training. Yeah. It's more, and it's training by doing. This isn't, yes. you know, like the, you know, in a sense that postmodernist thought of, you know, over intellectualizing the entire thing before you actually practice. You know, it's like they're learning every element getting used to everything working up and even the most like mundane you know small amounts but uh yeah what comes out is is a lavish brilliance of you know confluence of uh foundational training theoretical training and you know their imagination well that's the thing rules and limitations on some of your process and dedication to honing your skills doesn't diminish the freedom of creativity. Right. I think there's this big emphasis that I got put upon me when I was in art school um, of essentially, as long as you can intellectually justify what you're doing, you can just basically go, bam, I'm an artist. Bam, I made art. And it's like guilty. Sure, maybe, (laughs) you know, and like maybe the odd person has that ability to explode art out of them without any um, vocational training, Mm -hmm. but they're very rare, I would say. And the vast majority of people who think they can get away with making art because you can say that anything is art often fall into the... Less interesting category. Right. That's a good which good I know is extremely judgmental of me, but that's I don't know. I feel no, like I mean you're you're s- absolutely right. Yeah, I think you know, this day and age when yeah, I'm with you that it's rare. I think for mine and that aspect of I always like just created, but at the same time it's how I learned. You know, if I exactly like, yeah. say with music, if there was a trumpet line in my head in a song, I'd learn how to compose a trumpet you know or you know in those situations so it was kind of learning by doing but there are people that 
I mean, that's this day and age. It's the it's the age of convenience, right? It's the age of uh, laxability. So, you know, people can claim all they want with a few clicks of a button, and that's just what it is. <laughs> and and the desire, the desire for instant success. Mm -hmm. And you can tell. It's yeah. it's pretty uncanny. You can absolutely tell. Uh, Mary had a really good question, um, and I wanted to ask this too. Is there anyone like, do you find a particular type of artist that is drawn to the alchemical arts that, like, purchase from you to create? At the moment, the majority of my uh, customers are retired people from upstate New York. I love it. Perfect. Yeah. Is that, like, Alex Gray and, like, his little... I have no oh, idea. I, I get a lot of people from Florida buying it, too. Uh, I think it's just people who have money. And so let's, let's talk about that, that transition into kind of, I wouldn't say mass producing. How would you put it? Producing? Um, scaling up. Scaling up, yeah. Or like, uh, you know, by order. Um, because you are, I think, initially you were very much like a certain pigment-centered focus. Yes. Like you would create something and then you'd say, hey, you know, maybe this is available or blah 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 but now it seems like you have a spread yeah i'm trying to build a range of colors that i like uh and i think other people would like but each one of them harks back to something interesting um or has an interesting development kind of to it so like on the earth's tones and the earth pigment side of things that's based on what i could find you know, I'm like driving along, you know, because my partner and I go for little like just drives um, ever since we moved to the country here. There's mm -hmm. just so much to explore. And I'll just be like, there's a really interesting like patch of red ochre and just like mark it on, on the map. And then we'll go come back a few months later and dig up a little bit and see how it turns out as a paint. Whoa. Like, so, yeah. Can you reverse engineer the color that you see? Well, no, I just go and collect it. Right. And then yeah, just, just, out of yeah, the ground. just duplicate it. Yeah. Because, you know, on the side of the highways, they'll often be like the rock, cut, they'll cut out the side of the hillside there and there'll be all this exposed earth on the side of a highway kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you get much of that around Colorado. Yeah, Colorado. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you often get lots of big sort of veins of different colored ochres in there. And sometimes it can be really striking, especially after it's just been raining. You can really see everything vividly. I love it. Um, yeah, when it's when it's pungent. That's what I miss about Portland. It's like every color popped because of the moisture. Yeah. So yeah, I've been sort of developing ranges of colors and I'm starting to play around with themes and ideas. So like I'm working on because of all the work I've been doing with copper, I want to make a Venus themed set. Cool. And because and I'll do a Mars themed set as well um and things like that but it's mostly been out of necessity the idea that because there are plenty of other boutique watercolor makers out there but they don't make their own pigments so they right. have they can buy whatever pigment they want and make whatever colors they want so they can have extremely large ranges of colors and so it's 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 this thing of having to how do I put the internet has created this emulation <laughs> model where 
if you want to be successful, you need to emulate the trends in order yeah. to like, and so there's this, this difficult mismatch between trying to stay fundamentally unique mm. to what I want to do, but also being marketable. Yeah. It's and I had the this, hardest alchemy I've yet to find. I had this <laughs> real moment where my partner finished building the website for us and Google has an analytical tool where it analyzes the language of your website and it returned a result saying that the average language in my website would require a college degree to read yes yeah too passive <laughs> so they have that for with a hollowed we use a yeah. wordpress engine and the yeah. seo does that it's like readability yeah. brownie face <laughs> it says yeah. you know and i was like <laughs> I was like, what? So you're saying I'm too passive, so I'm not I'm not aggressively marketing enough. Right. And my language is too intellectual. It's like Yeah, exactly. Oh. So be stupid. So stop being you. Yeah, stop yeah. being you. Um but maybe you could talk about too what you're offering now because Mary also had another good question. It's like she you know, people want to know if they're they're powder or they are they mixed already. So like explain what these are. So initially I'm just making watercolor pans which, okay uh got some somewhere yeah uh, that's not a very good example but anyway <laughs> comes around but never data. i love it the alchemist shop uh so that's that's a pan of matter lake mm -hmm. um so it's a, like a little crimson red yeah. So that comes in like a, I don't know if you've used watercolors, but you essentially, they sort of dry as a little hard block that you can mm -hmm. re-wet and then paint out, um, which is, uh, how long have they been around? Since the 19th century, I think they've, that mm -hmm. style of watercolors. Um, so it's just mixing it with a binder of gum arabic and honey and glycerin with, wow. the, with the pigment. And, and so that's the... You said a plate, so like, uh, or a palette. I mean, it's like a. Uh, it's in know, a little so. pan. Oh, okay. So you are you? They're separate because I yeah. see them beautifully wrapped, and I always wondered, you know, on your website, like you have that beautiful wrapping, and they look maybe bigger than they are. Mm. They're quite small. Okay. But yeah. That will go a really long way for a painter. So right. that, depending on how heavy you use it, um, it. It um yeah, it will last a fairly long time. But they're a challenge in themselves because, and again, this is where what I'm doing differs from say mainstream watercolors that you would buy is because I'm not adding any sort of synthetic stabilizers. Each okay. pigment requires a different kind of binder. Some if you you know, you've got to tweak them slightly because sometimes a pigment is very absorbent and absorbs lots of moisture and just won't ever dry. Other times it just dries to a brittle mess and falls apart. And so it's like every single one, I have to formulate a new recipe, try and get it just to stabilize enough that it's a usable product. And that then means that the paint you're working with also has different qualities and characteristics. That's um, so cool. I love that. And so I've been building up that range of colors. And then eventually I'd like to start selling powdered pigments to people. 
Um, yeah. And so how they would need to, so they'd have to kind of, by their own volition, whether how they want to, you know, what kind of paint style they want to use, but that pigment would be the basis yes. for all of it. Yeah. Yes. So all paint is basically a pairing of pigment and binder, and it's just the type of binder. Mm -hmm. So oil paints, you're using linseed or poppy seed oil. Um, egg tempera, which is probably my favorite painting style, is egg yolk, water, mm -hmm. and pigment, um, which is what all of your um, classical um, Eastern European iconography is done in. Um, and then acrylic is using a, um, a polymer plastic acrylic uh, binder as its um, binding agent. Very which cool. I've never gelled well with acrylic. Something about it doesn't work for me. Oh, uh, so Oswald asked too, is the guest influenced by John Michael Greer? Which I'm not sure if you know. Yeah, modern I, I know the name. Yeah. I've heard you talk about it, but no, I am. This is an interesting thing for me heading down this path. Like I grew up exposed to a lot of like, my mom was very much into astrology and you know, we, we, we did little spells and rituals and things as a kid. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember writing things down, shoving them in shells and sealing them with wax and I love it. Doing yeah. things like that. But I've always found myself in both camps. I like the camp of the esoteric. Mm -hmm. and I like the, the traditionally scientific camp. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always approached things with a sense of analytical scientific method as well as enjoying the imagination that is generated from those things right and that's you know i kind of wanted to be clear with that i think it's it's like obvious why i call the channel prag magic because it's i'm a bit you know i i i hear out the woo you know i yep. i i believe people believe themselves a lot of the time and whether i believe them or not is inconsequential or whether it's real or not is kind of inconsequential because i think there is an inner you know working and a and a path that everyone kind of travels on to figure themselves out and to better themselves and to you know be more in touch with this like i was saying earlier the psychical resonance or whatever it is you know the uh collective unconscious you know for young or whatever but you know i want to be very practical in my application of such things like i don't want to get lost in the purveyance of like i'm every day i change my mind i'll just put it that way yeah i change my mind every day whether it's you know i'm commuting with other spirits or it's just a higher self or you know blah 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 like and we can go down this road you know until the sun comes up but the thing i love about you and your work is that it's very you know practical but it's magical in the same you know it's very pragmatic as well and i think you feel that too i think you come from both those camps of you know there is a scientific mind about you know what i'm understanding or what i'm trying of the other quote unquote right or you know, there's a, a personal alchemy. There's a transmutation, a trans like sublimation of, you know, different routines and self and whatnot. 
and you creating these things and we talked last year that you started that way and then kind of moved and passed through into this idea of just letting feel letting intuition kind of be your pilot you know mm. have you felt but you also see and this is the this is the fun part and this is why I love this you also parlayed it with something very pragmatic you you know grown the business so yes. in a way you've kind of excelled in both parallel you know and uh have you have you found a communion with those two avenues at the moment there's still a disconnect between yeah. <laughs> the business and the passionate side of things mm-hmm. um also like there's been you know and i think I've, there's been a number of months this year where i just haven't got any work done because of just all just of the stuff going on it's just turmoil like, yeah and it's 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 really depressing when you put all of this work in you release this new set you know with these new colors and you do a whole bunch of like posts about it and then you get no sales and you get a sale for a week and then another week goes by and you have no sales and then a month goes by and you've got you've made a hundred bucks and you're like oh, why am i doing this <laughs> yeah exactly so what what uh, is the discipline the growth you found to kind of counter that uh, the fear of going back to hospitality straight up yeah okay yeah yeah. Um, I get, yeah yeah uh just just got to keep doing it because it's it's just you just it's turn you. up every yeah. day and you do it whatever you can manage that day and it sure as hell beats doing anything else the fact so, that i'm yeah go ahead sorry oh uh, just the fact that i'm even able to attempt to um do something i really love is something worth pursuing as hard as possible yeah so there's an essence of gratitude that motivates oh yeah yeah also you know i've been working a lot with this idea of divergent magic which is like brain chemistry as the other you know okay utilizing you know routine in certain ways as like a long-form magical ritual every day to kind of you know make offerings to the other which is brain chemistry just like you know it's like a health mental health thing and i wonder like when you were talking about yeah there were months there's this huge blanket of everyone feeling this turmoil or repression you know i've went through some shit i've lost you know uh jobs and and security and you know things that kept me kind of afloat and able to maintain a motivation like do you find that there is a routine or a an essence of ritual in a day that keeps you above (laughs) i have to say i think i'm still working (laughs) that one out yeah me too Um, that's why i asked um i know i had this big reaction a couple of months ago at the height of all sorts of different things because we were in yeah as i said massive lockdown where because i got melbourne is the city we're closest to where i used to live that and i'm in now regional victoria so i'm about an hour and a half or an hour's drive from the city mm-hmm. they put this wall between not literal wall but a wall of police between the country and the city and you weren't allowed to pass between 
and we had nightly curfews like mm-hmm. all this crazy stuff and it was just all of this stuff going on and i just got to the point where i was like everything i'm seeing on the internet all day is so unreal like it's so far from what reality actually is and everybody's opinions whether you're this thing or that thing and whether you believe that thing's going on or that thing it's just like this insanity meshing together that i was just like enough and i i got i went outside and i started building myself a coal uh charcoal powered blacksmithing forge i love it yeah because i was like i need to get back to doing something that is in a literal sense real and so i started um heating up metal and hammering it and digging in the garden and getting back in here and making pigments. And when I made that conscious decision to try and spend more time entertaining and grappling with what was actually tangibly real, it definitely started to help in terms of feeling a little bit more centered because when you're in the digital sphere, you just, you just, it's chaos. It's a maelstrom. Yeah, I guess too, especially when you're coupling, you're parlaying what you love to do in the process into the hopes of creating, you know, a semblance of financial security or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, like it swarms my brain every day. You know, I still don't know how to tackle it, but yet I still have to, um, yeah, get myself out of the house, you know. Uh, I don't know. Like I, 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 I need to return to the earth more. So I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. We talk about that all the time. Mary's a incredible gardener. You know, now winter's coming. So there goes that. But, uh, <laughs> get a greenhouse. We'll yeah. We'll get, greenhouse. Hey, I'll build a greenhouse. Hell yeah. yeah. We were just talking. It's like, you know, it's funny, too, in the constellation of these conversations that I have with people such as yourself through, you know, the 54 episodes of Pragmagic or whatever, like I can hear the evolution or de-evolution of, you know, what I think I should do when I need to do. And it's pretty obvious what the continual conceptual idea of like how to better oneself is. And it's like, it has more to do with nature and less to do with digital. Yeah. <laughs> it's a difficult one. Yeah. Um, I think in reference to some earlier stuff you were saying about how to, how to make the business work and that sort of stuff. Part of what I'm learning is patience and building yeah. connections with people. Oh, relationships um, mean so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just like in I general. Was, but in terms of relationship between the real and the digital, um, I feel like we might just be at this point where we're not psychologically prepared for the digital. Yeah. Or um, like, I still hope to whip it into something where I'm not so chastised by it, you know, all the time. Like there's yeah. gotta be a way to, you know, to measure it or, or utilize it like a tool, right? Instead of God, like, yeah. Well, that, that was my big, that was my big thing recently was realizing that the internet is a tool, not a place. Right. 
because you yeah. we often see it as a place that we spend time right. not a tool to achieve a task i used to think you know information like i am obsessed with information as you are too you know we talked about this a lot um and the fact that like i could have any text in my fingertips and or like any slice of life from any part of the world at any time like is an addiction in and of itself you know well it it's a it's a false economy in the sense that you can have limitless information with the internet but there is a confining factor which is you only have x amount of attention right and they're mining it yeah exactly and they are actively seeking your attention and mm -hmm. so the double-edged sword with the internet is yes you have access to everything will you use it to find the most useful thing probably not right yeah uh so oswald had a funny question in the chat we actually talked a lot about this uh last time we chatted uh he asked a uh, bit of an oddball question but are the alchemy slash art scene in europe as pressured by intersexuality intersectionality uh, as they are in north america i can't speak on europe i can only speak I know, on it, it, he goes, oh he goes so snap he's in australia yeah. <laughs> but uh we talked about this before and we touched about it a little bit tonight about academia and postmodernism and yeah please Tradi traditional art um, schooling in Australia is entirely, oh, not entirely. I, I'm being, I'm not being generous to it, but yeah, there's a, there's a fairly strong sense of postmodernism and the art scene here in Melbourne in particular, like Melbourne is one of the more artsy cities, or at least it has the arrogant reputation of being one of the more artsy cities in, in Australia. It's very clicky. It's very much full of politics um, and different theories and all of that sort of stuff. And I, that most of that stuff exhausts me at the moment. Um, so <laughs> it exhausted you when we last chat earlier this yeah. year, but that was also at the precipice. I think everyone was feeling there was a huge uh, kind of incorrigible divide within academia about such things. And I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been in it. Uh, I don't think, yeah, you, have, you haven't been in it for past year or so. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a hard one to swallow. And yeah, like, yeah, and I, I'm... I don't know. I I know the validity of the academic world is is necessary to some degree, and then other times it's just they're just blowing smoke up their own asses, pretty yeah. much. Um, and that that that's just. I think it's always been like that, though. Um, it's just sometimes it gets noisier. Well, we talk about this too, and there's like a there's a tutelage right of art, and a lot of people argue. I mean, this is a whole you know, postmodernist take is that, yeah, everything is art or whatever, or, you know, to which I disagree. And a lot of people in the chat do as well, which is really funny. Um, yeah. But there is a, like a tutelage of self as a creator 
that you may not be heard, you may not be seen, but you know, you take it seriously enough to consider all the facets and the elementals of creating something. I think you should be considered an artist, not like you, I'm saying the royal you, yeah. you know, the royal you of the people that really take every elemental challenge into creating something and that are, you know, the medium is almost the message. And I think we've it. lost a bit of mentorship in our society. Yeah. We don't know how to develop good mentors and good, like art school feels like a factory. Um, oh yeah, I was there. feels like a factory to get jobs. I hated um, it. It was basically a picking pool for, yeah, film studio work. It was, yeah. yeah. And so genuine uh, inheriting of information and skills and mentorship is definitely of a less emphasis these days. And I think that's made us deficient in some way and makes us easier to be victims of marketing and dividing and divisive politics and stuff like that because we don't have this strong center. Yeah. Um, but that's also not to dismay that, you know, it doesn't take archaic text who maketh the artist or it doesn't take that that's you know, not what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. I, I think I'm more saying like healthy places in which to allow people to be fostered and nurtured and develop their creative mm -hmm. stuff and have the opportunity to le learn the skills they want to learn and have you know people who have real expertise share that expertise. Yeah. And like that's the beauty of YouTube is like trade schools, trade schools. But even YouTube has become a great learning platform. If I want to learn something, you know, I can just go and and watch, you know, fifty hours of somebody on YouTube blacksmithing, and then I can start to figure it out. And it's like, so YouTube has this beautiful ability to be a mentor, and all these people putting stuff up on there, and that's partly why I ended up being compelled to share what I do because I went on YouTube to look up pigment making because I was interested and there was nothing there. Right. Yeah. Nothing you know, at all. A lot of friends tell me that too. Uh, I have a lot of different creators that say, Hey, you know, I went to look for this on YouTube and they had nothing. So I started making YouTube videos. It's like why I did it with audiomancy. You mm. know, it's why uh, Lord Josh Allen, my friend did it with Lamat. you know, and you know, Taoism, uh, Taoist magic or whatever, you know, these very like yeah. niche kind of ideas. But at the same time, like, I love that, that gene pool of, of YouTube that, yeah, here we are. We're the kind of the creators on the outskirts or on the fringes that are, you know, probably pushing forward for people to understand very interesting and fun concepts that, you know, you don't need to spend $30,000 a year to get. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but then YouTube has, again, it's double-edged sword of like, you know, like I did a video on how to make your own watercolor binder not too long ago because it was my attempt to sort of branch out and get something that's a little bit more marketable video that can get a bit more traction because it's, you know, it's one thing to like say, you know, here's how you make and synthesize some crazy old pigment. You know, whereas everybody wants to know how to make a watercolor binder, you go on, you look at the top hits on YouTube and they've got, you know, half a million views. 
and you watch it and you're like, from my point of view, you're like, this is all wrong. Right. Everything about what they're doing is wrong or very surface level and just pretty, you know, nicely shot. And, and so for me, I'm then stuck in this conundrum of like, do I make the pretty surface video with the catchy title that's going to get half a million views? Or do I make the thing that's actually genuinely in depth and sharing as much of my knowledge as I can? Yeah. And I opted for doing that while trying to make it pretty and marketable. Of course you did. I mean, of course you did. <laughs> you know but it's been like, really really because like i you know but i'm saying just as a person i trust you like of course you made that choice you know yeah <laughs> but, but um i was talking to mary today i was watching some live stream tonight and it's like in this conspiratorial you know realm of you know taking down charlatans and stuff and they were talking about the charlatans you know uh in like ascension courses they're doing for fucking fake everything and i'm like i'm in the wrong business mary maybe we should just change <laughs> our entire thing <laughs> maybe well, we should that, stop being true to ourselves and just try to make money isn't yeah. that what Owen hobbit said like best yeah exactly not a religion that's exactly it yeah yeah and you know it's funny to that too the people that do the channels of that drama get a lot of views too so like yeah it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy of this like Uroboros of, yeah. you know, snake eating its tail in that sense. But, you know, we shall persevere. We shall. <laughs> it's always the challenge. So yeah. six, uh, six sense asks, is there something you wish to further yourself in the field of alchemy or something you always wanted to do that you have not met? It's a good question. This is a double question, sneaky question. Something that I've always wanted to do. Yeah, kind of like what? What's the next plat? Not plateau, because that means, yeah. you know, false level. But the next stage. Again, it ends up being a practical one, but again, it has a uh, an element of. There's a symbolic element to it too, which is. So I've started, so with the, this particular paint here, the matter root. So I, I, it comes from a root of a plant that I um, get from Iran. And so I've just planted some seeds for that and I'm growing up my own seedlings and they'll take about two to three years before they're ready to harvest to make color. And for me, I'm obsessed with being a from the rawest possible materials kind of person. So I really want to be able to make a paint from, from seed to earth, to harvesting roots, to making the pigment, to making the paint. Oh, I just nice. think like over a two to three year period, just the rewarding um, nature of watching that entire process unfold. Like one of my other main obsessions is one day I want to make steel from the earth i want to do oh, cool like i really want to smelt my own steel from iron ore and then turn that into something i don't know what it does it's irrelevant what i make in the end the idea of being that primitive because and that's partly why i was drawn back to blacksmithing which has been mm. my relaxation <laughs> Um, is the next stage after blacksmithing is it like well you already kind of do a, a herbology 
In a yeah, way. I, so, like, I do that too. And that was before I got into all of this alchemical stuff. I was very, very into entheogenic plant cultivating. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you it's know, and, and on a very deep level too of like, and it was it was almost like a pre-alchemy for me, um, my interest into um, growing plants and stuff like that because I got really into like micro like organic microbiology stuff, looking at the interactions between fungi and the soil and bacteria and, mm-hmm. you know, taking a very scientific approach, but also an extremely holistic, biodynamic, organic, no-till gardening approach too. Um, and so I like these, like, I think it's a f- obsession with first principles. So it's like, if I want a blacksmith, I want to make my own steel. How do I make my own steel? I need to get earth and I need to smelt the earth into steel right i want to make a pigment i need a root i want to grow a seed to get the root it's like i want to go as back to the original principles as i can i love that so i guess that is the natural progression what is after uh like iron work I don't know if there is. I think it's a never-ending regression right but uh, right yeah you go back i guess yeah and then I'm trying to think. I was like, maybe it is pharmacology. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it's, always it's, there yeah. in the back of my mind. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of friends that thought they were, and it never turned out well. So <laughs> be wary. Yeah. But they also weren't artists or actual like chemists or alchemists, you know. So, you know, who knows? Oh, that side of things I'm not worried about yeah exactly yeah um i just yeah i got really into this idea of realizing that so like we're talking now through the magic of the internet Mm. that was only made possible because of this never-ending lineage of refinement so at some point x number of thousands of years ago somebody managed to get a fire hot enough that turned iron ore into metal which allowed them to turn that iron into a hammer which allowed them to hammer a finer tool which Mm -hmm. allowed them to create a more and more finer tool to the point where we could make a you know a silicon transistor and a microchip and but all of those microchips and smartphones are entirely dependent on the fact that at some point somebody was just smashing blunt objects against each other (laughs) right to sharpen yeah yeah and that's how we got here just to flatten well it's funny too to have you work parallel in the like progression of digital you know uh sales and and entrepreneurship whilst you know you know dropping back or or regressing and the other and i think that's kind of the only way to do it it makes perfect sense to me like that's how you marriage the two because yeah if if you're like me right now where you don't really have the space right now because of covid and everything to you know record loud music or do live things you're pretty much on the computer and if you're not having the percussive elements or you know hitting or you know strumming things loud or belting your life out into the heavens like it's really just through this tiny window we have in front of us and like if it's all based in that then 
that doesn't really you know it you doesn't don't have really a, soothe parts that need to be soothed you're lacking the gravity of something real yeah exactly um, and that's why I, I get you when you're like you're talking about just hammering you know mm. just well my partner got me a um axe for my birthday nice um really beautiful german small hand hatchet with damascus steel and just going out and axing stuff is great mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just and it's just like it's a shame that i can't you know wear this thing around with me all the time because it would be a bit weird but oh would it i don't know i guess you don't yeah. live in america i guess yeah means. that's true yeah <laughs> um but just yeah just the simple basic actions of making things and making things from raw materials is always going to be deeply satisfying to me and while it. there's always going to be this struggle between like taking that deep satisfaction and then turning it into a marketing campaign in order to bring people into the story of your work to sell products right it's always going to be tough but well and i think that's what i wanted to glean from you you know i told my partner about talking with you tonight i you know i was like yeah but it, there's you know I, I really look up to jeremy and especially being you know uh like to to see the purview of when you started this and like you're being able to you know uh put it into that alchemized you know entrepreneurship i was like that's you know because that's something i'm struggling with that's I'm, I'm sure something everyone's struggling with in these times and so you know to hear that makes absolute sense to me that we need to, yeah, we need to kind of reconfigure, I think, our modes of what we're, what we're considering tools. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one other thing I'm like majorly working for at the moment is I want to start teaching um, in-person classes on how to, you know. Oh, I'd love to make, do that. And as we you know and the, this is a future idea because obviously the world's in a difficult spot for moving around and doing those things but again it's like making paints is all well and good and you know i'll keep doing that because i like making paints um but it's not what i ultimately want to end up doing right and, and so what, what is what is it then that you want to ultimately end up doing Sorry, you don't. You don't have to say. No, it, it can I be a personal pursuit. You know. No, it's it's a case of making sure the history of these things doesn't get lost. Yeah, and, and it gets saying it out. Yeah, and it gets it taught to other people. Yeah, and if I can make a living off one exploring and trying to look, because part of the problem with a lot of these things is there isn't anyone who knows how to do it anymore. That's true. You're the only um, one I know. Like, like one of the, the copper blues that I'm making at the moment, the last video I put up on blue vertita, I know, I know there's a, there's a guy here in Melbourne that I, I work with. Um, and he knows the last person alive in England who knows how to make this, this blue pigment. 
and knows all of the secrets of it and all this sort of stuff. And so outside of that one guy in England who's quite old and literally the only way you can contact him is through fax machine or telephone. I love it. Yeah. Um, he's the last person that knows how to make blue vertiter properly. So when he goes, it's gone. And that's why I'm desperately trying to learn as much as I can about it. And so ultimately, it would be really nice to be able to travel around, hold workshops, teach people how they can make their own art materials because the, the other main goal is to help artists get a deeper relationship to their materials. I yeah. think if they can understand where their colors come from, why they are that way, and what properties and behaviors and characteristics they have, I think it'll be beneficial to helping um, counteract some of the uh, the hot air from postmodernism. I love it. So you you have an educational streak in you, and I think that's was sorely missed. You know, we came out in Colorado to start a program for outdoor education, and you're talking about blacksmithing. You know, working with that program, they did blacksmithing, like yep. it was all nature based. Love it very dearly, but like there is a sure, sorry, uh, lack of, you know, we taught kids this summer, uh, brought them out to the wilderness, told them how to throw knives, shoot arrows, and make fires out of nothing, you know, and yep. they couldn't wait to get to the iPad. And I'm like, yeah, well, this is. I, I kind of share in that, like, there needs to be more of that temperance, that, like, you know, passionate patience when it comes to being educational. You know, and there is an, an educated, like, someone being educated. You need a, you need a temperance. You need a passion, patience. Time. Yeah. <laughs> Time is a, is a big factor in both learning and doing that I think. <laughs> She's laughing at the background. Yeah. Patience. Patience. Yeah. But uh, so I asked uh, our lovely chat, who I want to say, hey, and thank you for showing up. Pretty sure I gave wrenches to all the ones I like. Just kidding. If you don't have one, I should probably branches to all those too uh i like all of you uh robin bunya blah 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 blah. so i asked them for questions and uh they keep they keep pounding it it's great uh has he made pigment from woad ah i was just checking um that's from navier I actually just picked a tiny piece of word from my garden to see how it's coming along. So that's my next, that's one of my summer projects is I'm growing a field of woad at the moment, or at least trying to, we're only just getting out of winter and I have to deal with the frost first, but as the weather warms up, so hopefully mid-March, I'll be able to make some woad-based pigments, um, which is really exciting because um, I started playing around with indigo um, and Wode's just an extension of indigo. It's the European variant, um, which I find I think will be an interesting endeavor given that somewhere in my family history, um, one of my um, 
on my grandparents on my mom's grandparents side um one of my um ancestors was an indigo um farmer in india oh my god like the actual yep. indigo wow yeah yeah um back in the 1800s or something like that would have been they are, had a big indigo i mean indigo talk about farm. the coolest colors that's probably the best one yeah it is pretty cool um <laughs> so i'm looking forward to picking up that i guess familial heritage of indigo farming are you kidding i had no idea it was like in your yeah. blood as a color <laughs> man that's yeah funny. that's really cool so yeah you're working with wode yes um look forward to trying that out so i think part of the process is you pick the leaves and you roll them into little balls you make woad balls and you let them sit and ferment and they go blue and then you extract out all of the indigo color from them but that's about as much as i know that's i'm so excited for this because like like i said indigo to me is it's supreme yes the choice color you As know, a if, really you thought, if you weird... thought purple was regal ooh, wait till you get psychical with indigo yeah it's got a really weird smell <laughs> yeah indigo has a strange smell i kind of like it but it's kind of gross <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the best reaction that sounds like indigo to me I like things that are kind of gross. All right. Um, that's awesome. So you're working with mode. Um, can these pigments be safely used in face and or body ritual for performance person for, for performance purposes? Uh, some yes, some no. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So anything that has cobalt. Cobalt's not good. No, no, cobalt's oh, not good. That's, would... that's right. Cobalt's using like uh very toxic. Was it uh, heavy metals? Heavy metals. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. I love the heavy metal pigments. Are you <laughs> kidding? Cobalt's like the best pigment. Yeah, cobalt's it. incredible. Um, cadmium is incredible. Cadmium. I don't sell any lead because there's too much logistics in that. But if I could, I would because lead is incredible right um mercury is incredible um but uh yeah some of the pigments can be so anything that's derived from plants is usually pretty safe so the matter uh, i made a pigment from pomegranates um really i find it so hard to uh, like to drain color from a pomegranate it's so oh, it's yellow it's from the skin yeah not the the, okay really yeah. a yellow pomegranate yeah all right yeah yeah all right um, uh persephone yeah earth tones you can use all the ochres on your skin and all that sort of stuff that's you know very acceptable but yeah you have to be careful with with pigments especially if you're just even like buying them out and about because i see a lot of people asking this question can i use it on my body or Great, I'm gonna make this thing and use it as eyeshadow. And you're like, no, 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 don't do that. No, don't you do don't. That. Okay, so yeah. you don't with certain, but there's others that you can. Yeah, there are others that you can, and again, this is this is the problem with modern societies. People don't know what they should or shouldn't respect in how toxic it is. 
so there's this uh, disconnect between people's understanding of, of whether or not a chemical is is uh, safe or not for them. Do you think like with the lead that you were working with that comes from a long term of, you know, because you were, we were talking that lead, yeah, it was the base standard for many years, uh, lead paint. Yes. yes. And um, then, yeah, so like does that take like a lifetime of being around? Your main problem with lead paint is exposure to dust. So it, with all of these things, it's a respiratory thing because it's the quickest way to get into your system. Um, you just have to be careful of that. Like if you have lead white oil paint and you squeeze it out of the tube and you paint with it and you don't go there sitting there eating it, you'll be fine. Don't sniff, yeah. don't sniff the pigments. Yeah, pretty much. Just don't um, sniff the pigments. <laughs> All right, so uh, Sixth Sense asks, what is the biggest or hardest achievement in alchemy you think you have accomplished? Maybe one you are most proud of or taught you the most. It would be my matter pigments. Um, I don't know if I have any of them around. This pink pigment here. Um, which comes from, oh, so this is the matter root. I don't know if it's going to focus well enough on this there, but it's really fickle working with like plants. Plants are so much more unpredictable than metals, which makes sense metals are rigid and solid and stuff like that. And so I've probably done, you know, 20 or 30 different batches of making matter pigment and it bewildered me at the beginning, but over time I've gotten to this point where I'm really comfortable and producing something that I'm really, really happy with, with this really rich result. And I really feel like I know and understand the, the, the matter root. I, you know, again, it has different smells when I'm working with it. It has, you know, different qualities. And like for a while, one of the issues I had was when I was making the actual pigment, I was having these explosions of foam, this pink froth and foam oh, out everywhere. And I was like, I can't, I can't scale this up. It's getting too much. Like it's crazy. Like everything I'm working with is safe and not toxic, but it was just going everywhere and I was making, I would, I would have these sessions where I would make matter pigment and just everything would be splattered with stuff. And I would have just made every bench top and messed up every possible thing I could and it just junk everywhere. And it was really fun being that viscerally into the experience. But as like time's gone on. Jackson Pollock. Yeah. It, oh. But as time's gone on, I really, become to know and love the matter pigment and the process and I'm at a point where I at the beginning I felt like I was in imposter syndrome where I was like I've read what I'm supposed to do and I'm it's working but I can't necessarily call this like masterful quality stuff but after a year of solidly doing this a lot I really feel like this is the one pigment I've kind of really mastered oh I love that yeah yeah um are you able 
uh, send me that. I'm going to put that in the link. At least that, you know, transmutation. Because I love that. Like, your favorite pigment is usually always the best. I think before when we were talking, it was a yellow, and it was so good. Um, I forget which yellow it was. Yeah, yellows? Yeah, it's like one of the early yellows you did, and it was so vibrant. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that would have been cadmium yellow. Cadmium, yeah. 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 So poisonous. <laughs> when it's in the form of the cadmium pigment, it's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's the process leading up to it that's not okay, um, which is always a fun one and fun in a classical alchemy sense too because it, it has the potential to produce hydrogen sulfide gas, which is your classic rotten egg. Um, right thing which it's a good it's a one with smell. Yeah. we all know that smell and <laughs> the human nose is acutely designed to detect it mm. so you can detect it in like parts per billion when it's way below the threshold of harming you don't they put that scent in gasoline or petrol yes. yeah. yeah help you know it's there to help you know it's there yeah yeah and otherwise the danger scentless. with yeah. The, the danger with it is if you can smell it and then the smell gets stronger and then suddenly you can't smell it anymore, that's when you're in the bad spot because it eventually makes your sense of smell turn off oh. when it gets to the level where you're about to get in trouble. I kind of love that. Yeah, it's, it's like, really it's cool. It's like that ant that puts the bacteria in the insect's brain and takes it yeah. Yeah. So whenever I'm working with making the cadmium yellow, not that there is that much risk of producing it, but, you know, as I'm starting to make it, I'm like, all right, there's the rotten egg smell. And then I get <laughs> obsessed with making sure my sense of smell is still there. So I might like, just like be smelling, like I'll go grab a piece of lavender or something and be like, well, I oh, know I can still smell. I'm still safe. And that's pressing it too, because it wasn't one of the COVID uh symptoms loss of smell yeah it might have yeah i think it was supposedly yeah, I think it was it was here but i you know it seems like you guys treated it a bit uh tougher than we got it <laughs> to put it lightly yeah yeah uh, a bit tougher yeah you were a little bit tougher. yeah total lockdown we're probably moving towards it we have the worst numbers that we've ever had so we'll see, but um, I think you guys are in for a complex time. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, it's fine. I know from the first quarantine to do something different this time. You know, yep. <laughs> I did not treat that first quarantine well. I I let stress kind of impede me, and I was just uh, I was just a mess. We'll just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, but, I'm uh, glad I got out to the countryside. It's just been so much nicer to be. I'm so excited to get out of the city. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. That's all we want. You know, we, we talk about What city are you time. in now? We're in Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a it's big like the biggest. Yeah. It's yeah. the biggest in Colorado. So we're like city proper, not to dox myself or anything, but you know, we it's very city. It's very city. 
but it's also very like weird Tim Burton-esque, you know, yep. uh, Victorian home, different colors of pastels, you know, <laughs> like yep. very, very strange and very, very neat. But, you know, we we weren't able I was working with a, a, a venue and I was my first show that I booked was March 13th of last year. So that day they knew they were going to announce it uh, COVID as a national emergency. Yeah. So everyone decided or a lot of people decided not to show up and then the bar had to shut down for 3 months. So it was like, uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we're at. Uh it but is. I did want to ask so Mary asked uh about henna and about that being let me see if I can find that question. Um, I don't know if I can. I remember there's a henna question and what kind of that does to your skin. Let's I think see. it's probably okay. Right, it's just got a marker. Well, the henna's a dye, not a pigment. So. A dye. Okay, yep. cool. There you go. There's a, there is a fundamental difference between the two. There's usually a slight overlap, but does um, henna fit into the chemical arts? She was asking. So it's a dye. So yeah. Yeah, I've never played around with it apart from when I was younger. Um, but no, I, I need don't. it because I've been doing. You know, I talk about how I write my shit with sharp. Yeah, you with your sharp. Yeah, <laughs> that's not good for you. That's not good. I I've been still thinking henna. about. I think maybe what I could do for you is make you some sort of indigo dye. That you I would use. love that. Are you kidding? Because yeah. that would be safe. That so hard. Yeah. Yeah. If it not only is it safe, it just is like my color. God, I love yeah. that color. You know. Yeah. So we anyways, work on uh, that. Oh, I mean, you know, no rush. I get you. You're you're a busy man. But also, Sixth Sense says, do any reactions in parentheticals when making the pigments get hot or cold? And are these true transmutations? Yes, things get hot. Um, and things, temperature plays a big role in a lot of what I do. So like the blue copper pigments that I've been making, um, I'll show you. So these two here, uh, so this they're both exactly the same chemical. Um, they're both copper carbonate, um, but the blue one has to be produced at less than 11 degrees Celsius. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, maybe like 20. 11, so like 30 is about 80, I think. Yes, so yeah. a third of that. Yeah. Um, and so it'll only be produced at a slow, you need like four or five days of slow reaction between the copper and the, the chalk mm -hmm. to make the copper carbonate and to make it blue. If I do the same reaction at boiling temperature, you get this color. So the difference between, the, so this one is done cold 
over the course of many, many days or weeks. This is done instantaneously boiling, but they're the same thing. But they have radically different really? colors because of how they're made and where they're born. One gets one gets all powdery periwinkle. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's really, yeah. So temperature plays a big role and time of digestion and speed um, in the terms of what you end up with a final color. I love it. Oh, uh, six says 32 is 51 Fahrenheit. That doesn't make sense. I don't understand. Three degrees Celsius is 51.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, well, because you I said don't know why. Said, I don't know why the U.S. still insists on using Fahrenheit. I, listen, we drive yeah, go down. on the right side. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's the whole thing. It's like, why? Why do we insist? Yeah, it makes no sense. The rest of the world doesn't. It makes no sense. I'm gonna learn the metric system. I swear. I'm gonna do it. It's, there's nothing to learn. I know it's called the metric system. Like there's a one and there's a zero, and that's all there is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm gonna ask the chat if there's any more questions. Uh, please send them my way. Otherwise, like let's talk about what's coming up. Let's, uh, you know, let's talk because, like, I love seeing you. You said to me that you were gonna send me a little. Like I am. I have a color squad. Yeah, I'm so excited for it. It didn't happen before we talked, but like you're you're working on big stuff. You're working on palettes. You're working on. Yeah, I, what's coming up is mostly. Um, so at the moment, my kiln is still stuck in Melbourne, and so I need to get that ship shipped out here, so then I can get back to making pigments that require heat. Um, cause a lot of pigments need calcination and you got, you got like a full kiln. Yeah. Oh, I managed nice. to find one. Yeah. Yeah. There was an old, um, Greek guy who is using it for heat treating tools or something like that, selling it on Gumtree for like a couple hundred bucks. And I was like, I'm going to grab this kiln. Oh my God. That's um, awesome. So uh, having, and it, it's really nice going through the process of upgrading my fire essentially, which is. You know, if you want to get back to classical alchemy, that's central to your work. Right. You know, I started with a gas forge as my first source of fire that could get up to, you know, 1,000 plus degrees. And now I have this nice, fancy temperature-controlled kiln, which, you know, is a godsend in one way because I can just dial in, all right, I need it at 980 degrees for two hours, done. You know, and I, I don't have it. to worry about whether or not I'm going to burn everything down or explode something with a gas forge by walking <laughs> away. Yeah. So that's handy. Um, so as soon as I get that back, there's a multitude of, there's this really beautiful manganese violet. I want to make this rich purple and um, a bunch of different stuff to explore and make and heaps of different videos in the works and stuff like that. But I'd really like to get to this point of being able to run classes and it really depends on how next year plays out with, you know, distancing and stuff. Because like one of the interesting things from the YouTube channel and Instagram is I've been growing a following of people in Iran. Oh, cool. there are the, There's some really cool artists in Iran. 
I love a lot that. of women who are really into making their own paints from local materials. So they, cause they have this history of making dyes and paints um, in Iran. That's and so, so there's, cool. there's all these, these women who do these incredibly psychedelic geometric pattern paintings from stuff they have made themselves only colors that they make themselves and i get heaps of emails and questions from them and so i'd really love to travel to iran and teach some classes or something like that and learn what they have to teach me in return and you know all this sort of stuff and like to come out to the us and you know see the incredible geology that you guys have there like, it's yeah it's 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 irreplaceable like there, yeah. there's there's nothing like it but at the same time we are dying to see Australia. And oh, I love yeah. that you moved into the country. That's so cool. And it's not like the bush, right? You said it was the, the mountains. Uh, we're elevated up a little bit, but yeah. like when I say country, it's like I'm out of the Melbourne and I'm, I can see rolling hillsides and the forest is just down the road, but I'm also 200 meters away from the fish and chip shop and the supermarket. I love it. Yeah. And there's a donut van that rocks up on Fridays on my we're street just, so i'm like it's everything i could want <laughs> we're dying to get out of the city i yeah. love that it sounds so good um and thank you six cents for posting uh jeremy's alchemical arts youtube oh, yeah thank you uh in the chat that's very cool um it's always a pleasure man it's so good to catch up with you it yeah really it's is. so good and I'd really like to, and I think we talked about this last time, one day we should do some collaborating stuff because I, I, I'm really always enjoying the output of music that you've been doing. Like I've listened to your last album to death. Like, Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I constantly yeah. give it a whirl. It's good walking music. Yeah. Like yeah. When I'm walking home from a friend's place late at night, you know, man smoked a little bit here and there, put on the headphones <laughs> and just walk. That album gets you home. Like I've always got this option of like when I was living in the city, I had the option of like I could get an Uber to cost like seven dollars to get home, mm -hmm. or I could whack on your album and walk for forty minutes. No way, I saved you I, money. Well, I don't care about the money. I actually I care about the experience of walking. That's, so I that, really that means that. so much. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm always down. You know, we're working on a new We the Holiday audio sigil and stuff. If you had a track or anything that kind of pervades, you know, what you do, send it to me. Well, like, well, I haven't done any music for years. This. I know, um, I know, I know you said that. Um, I more mean like if I did some video work. Oh, I would like love really it. Really close up stuff of people. Oh maybe. my God. So I also, so, okay. I kind of, so at the, at the end of every, uh, liminal stream of doing a little audio mancy thing right where i sequence with something else so like i'll I'll play a demo and then sequence it so yep. the unfortunate thing is that i played kind of the song that i played in the beginning but i also have it kind of sequenced to a slowed down version of your alchemical arts like main intro, intro. yeah yeah and I thought that would be a cool way to like end it. Well, that's exactly so. what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, if no one's got any more questions, 
you guys are the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Mary Navier Six Bunya, Godzilla uh, Oswald. Uh, so many people. I can't even get back into up to who was all there. Stephen Ronan, you know, off the top of my head. That's it. Um, so yeah, so we'll play that song maybe, and I'll sequence it to you. And everyone has your link in the ch- in the chat, and they'll see your beautiful animation for the intro. So it might not work, but let's try it. Yes. <laughs> All right, Jeremy. Always good, man. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Always, always. Yeah, keep in touch. Like, let's keep doing Definitely this. Will. Yeah, right. no, we will. All right, good. And hopefully, okay. I can get out to the U.S. at some point. I mean, straight up. Hopefully, we can leave the U.S. at some point. Well, yeah, <laughs> we legally can't leave Australia at the moment. I don't think we can go anywhere. I don't think Australia would let us in. No, you. They wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. So here we are. Yep. In quarantine. All right, man. We're going to give this a try. So good. Thanks, man. Uh, Six says, have a good one. Thank you. Peace, Jeremy. Everyone says goodbye. Thanks to everyone. Yeah, that was really sweet. Um, All right. We'll see you soon. See ya.